Hello, and welcome to the House of Legends, where you can hear world myths and legends told by a professional storyteller. If you're a new listener, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're a new listener, then hit subscribe now in your podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. On this podcast, you'll hear myths, legends, and traditional stories from myself and master storytellers from across the world. I release two episodes each month, one featuring a story from me and one featuring a story from a guest teller. You can get access to every House of Legends episode by becoming a patron. By pledging $5 per month or more, you'll receive a patron-only episode each month, along with a worksheet full of questions and creative prompts to help you deepen your connection to the story. As well as being an oral storyteller, I'm also an author and a storytelling coach. You can now find my books by searching for Daniel Allison on all the major online bookstores, although currently you can only get my full catalogue on Amazon. You can get my book The Shattering Sea as a free download on Kindle, Kobo, Nook and Apple Books. If you're interested in becoming a storyteller yourself, or you're already a storyteller and would like to develop your craft, you can join my online storytelling school, The Roundhouse, or you can join my Myth Singers coaching program which includes Roundhouse membership plus two monthly group coaching sessions with me. Visit roundhouseschool.com to explore the Roundhouse and download a free pack of stories. You'll find links to all of the above in the show notes. My guest on this episode is Ian Stephen. Ian is a writer, poet and storyteller from the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides off the west coast of Scotland. He worked for 15 years in the Coast Guard Service based in Stornoway, And since 1995, he's worked full-time in the arts since winning the inaugural Robert Louis Stevenson Award. Ian was the first artist-in-residence at Stanza, Scotland's annual poetry festival. His poetry and short fiction have been published in journals worldwide, while his debut novel, A Book of Death and Fish, was a book of the year choice in The Guardian, The Herald and The Glasgow Review. I first met Ian while on a storytelling tour of the Outer Hebrides, on an evening which culminated in a wild and unforgettable Kaylee in his kitchen. I've been a huge fan of his work since then, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him to the podcast. Before we begin the interview, I'd like to say thank you to Sydney Everett and to Rachel Tribble for becoming patrons of House of Legends. Hi Ian, welcome to House of Legends. Uh, hi Daniel, uh, a little bit of a distance away, but island to island, so good to have a conversation. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. I wanted to get you on here for a long time. And I've, uh, I've, I'm sure I've mentioned you on the podcast before, because I think I've talked about the journeys I've taken up to Isle of Lewis, to Lewis which have been so magical. And uh, I've told the story of the fairy lover, which I heard from you on Lewis on this podcast. So great to have have you yourself uh, on the podcast. And uh, I see uh, you're in your home in Lewis, which uh, I don't know if you remember, I visited when you hadn't moved I in do. yet. We did a bit of painting on the wall. Yeah, thank you very much for that help. Every little bit helped. Yeah. Yes, uh, we, we've been living here about three years now and the view hasn't changed. The house is a little bit more finished, but the view hasn't changed. So we look out over Broad Bay, north side of the I Peninsula, and most days we can see the Sutherland Mountains, Sulban and Canisp over Jumpin' Head. Uh, right now we're dark, of course, so Jumpin' Head Lighthouse will be doing its group flash too, which is somehow, even when you're ashore, quite reassuring. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, yeah. So that view is so we are for people on the other side of the world who are not so familiar with Scottish geography. So that's on the east coast of the Isle of Lewis, uh, looking towards the northwest of the Scottish mainland and towards that's that incredible us. range of mountains over there. That's us. And uh, and they shift. Sometimes they come across the mountains and they look like they've just plonked themselves our side. With the visibility, mm. they look completely different every day, which makes it just wonderful. Mm. So are they a real presence in your life then? Oh, yeah, moments? yeah. And uh, Christine's mum lives with us and she, you know, she isn't able to get out of the house much. So she's absolutely fascinated by how the view changes all the time. And uh, she'll map really the day on whether you can see the mountains today or not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, I love that. That's such a good way to, to map the day. Yeah. And Christine uh, is, is an artist. So you've got a, an artist and a writer, a storyteller. A poet in the house so you're really engaging with the landscape in all these different ways aren't you well never more so than a few weeks ago christine has been developing a studio project with some help from her mum which is beside the house but of course uh, not in front of it to take away the view it kind of it kind of wraps around the house and it's in dark material <laughs> shades of Philip Pullman <laughs> but, but she calls it shadow studio because although it's quite a large volume you, you hardly see it but we had a commission from the Scottish International Storyteller Storytelling Festival to work together again where a, a kind of linked story is, is the form uh, of a film a film project but Christine's illustrations uh, help map your way through the story. So we, we did a similar project last year, so we're delighted to have another commission. So that was the first uh, project in the new studio. So um, uh, more of that later, but hopefully that will be available online very soon. And oh, really? uh, you can see the, the product and how it works with the other elements, including music by the... Um, Scottish uh, musician Mike Bass and uh, the Gaelic singer and wonderful piper Anna Murray, who is from this part of the island. So, yeah, so already we're into the multi arts project. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I, I really wanted to go to your event and the festival and I couldn't make it. I had something else on, so I'm really glad to hear. And there's going to be some stuff available online. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So I wonder if we could, uh, or if you could tell us a bit about uh, Lewis and about uh, the Western Isles in general, situates the listener. Hey, sure. Um, this, uh, this is a, a Gaelic-speaking area. Um, it's, all, it's got so unusual for the Scottish islands, island of Lewis, because it's basically got what I would call a semi-urban settlement in Stornoway, which um, is built around a natural harbour, prospered uh, mainly due to the herring industry and then laterally with exporting Harris tweed and other forms of the fishing industry. Um, you can no longer say that they're the lifeblood of the island, but that's the background that founded the town. But it means that the town of Stornoway has a bit of an identity in its own right, and I grew up in that town. And that's why, really, I'm not a native Gaelic speaker. I wouldn't consider myself competent in Gaelic, although my mother was a native speaker. My father was from the east coast of Scotland, with a completely different voice of Scotland, the Doric. Get out, the Doric, feel like. 
Um, even most of my peers who had two Gaelic speaking parents didn't speak Gaelic. It's not a thing to be proud of. It's just a cultural thing that happened. But what it meant really was, I, I think, that I got a sense from the beginning of different voices of Scotland. I was surrounded with um, my mother talking to her brothers and sisters in Gaelic and translating only some of the stories for the offspring. I'm sure they shifted into Gaelic so that we couldn't get everything. I'm sure that's not unusual in, in uh, multilingual societies. Mm. But um, any time uh, there was a phone call from one of my father's relatives, he would go right back into his good Doric voice. He would call it Buchan rather than Doric, but uh, he was from Fraserburgh, the Broch, another fishing town, and he'd be right back in there. So I think I was conscious of the different voices of Scotland from the beginning. Mm. Okay. So that's really interesting that the language Gaelic and how much that's shaped your your experience in your life because you didn't grow up as a as a fluent Gaelic speaker. And could you tell us a bit about the landscape? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of people say Lewis is like that. It's not. Yeah. It's not flat at all. Yeah. They say it is. Yeah. Same way as they say, the prairies, why are you going there? They use the same gesture. Why the hell are you going there? You know? They're not. They're actually undulating and rather beautiful landscape in their own right. Yeah, so, so, so Lewis is not as mountainous as the south of the island, which is called Harris. It's not a separate island, just to confuse everybody. Lewis and Harris are actually joined together at the hip. But Harris and Southwest Lewis are more mountainous, and North Lewis is uh, more level. It's not actually level, but it's it's mainly a moorland landscape with a great contrast when you come to the coasts. So you get moorland isn't for everybody. Some people feel it's bleak. Some people liken it to desert. But I have heard people be very eloquent about desert landscape and the, the moorland of, of Lewis when you go when you go into it um, has got its own fascination its own appeal numerous lochs what most would call lakes of course in Scotland are lochs numerous numerous lochs as somebody who grew up with trout fishing um, I'm kind of conscious of that and, uh, this amazing free resource of being able to fish for a while beautiful wild brown trout um, so the riches are there in the landscape uh, flora and fauna bird life as well when you come to the coasts there's a great contrast and of course that's where all the settlements were my mother's family were originally from the southwest of Lewis a district called the Valtus Peninsula which is comparatively fertile by Lewis standards green now they were cleared um, uh, to, uh, I think, probably the 19th century, they were cleared north to much more inhospitable terrain for crofting or small-scale farming. And that's a pattern that happened all over the island. And my mother used to get very angry when people said that we didn't have clearances on Lewis in the same way as they happened on the mainland in areas like Sutherland. 
because our family, you know, had that direct experience of being moved. Mm. So um, the coastal fringes are re were really the only viable places. You had the resources of fishing, but you also had comparatively fertile strips. And that still remains. We have uh, a taddy patch, which now also has uh, excellent carrots and parsnips in uh, a strip that one of our neighbours ploughed for us down by the shore. So you still have these uh, fertile coastal fringes. So I, I hope that paints a little bit of the impression of the landscape. Yeah, yeah, certainly great. And I suppose we must also mention the, the sea, of course. Uh, just been reflecting on how someone like you, whose uh, life has revolved around the sea and perhaps for many people throughout history and um, before we started traveling around in cars, perhaps the world looks like sea with some, you know, with some land on it rather than land with some sea around it. I think you must uh, look at landscapes, seascapes in a different way to, to I do. And the, the sea is such a huge part of the, the experience of being in Lewis. I mean, I remember so clearly uh, last time I was up on um, the winter solstice, you know, being over in the west coast in Uig and watching these hundred I don't know, it seems like 100 metre waves like crashing over the cliffs. It's it's so powerful. It, it's a very powerful landscape. And uh, yeah, the the, uh, the power of the sea is absolutely enormous. Recently, we just had the Island Book Festival and I was asked to chair and interview uh, John Love, who, who uh, has a chapter in one of his publications on exactly that, the power of the sea. He discusses the Flannan Isles Lighthouse story, which of course is when the three keepers uh, all went missing um, in 1900. And there's been, <laughs> well, more than a century of discussion of what could have happened. For John, there's no mystery. The main player is the sea. And I also researched this subject because I had, a, I had a commission to write a play on the Flannan Isles story some years ago. And in the research, I came to the same conclusion that the, the, the conditions you might find almost any winter, and in fact, even in summer, uh, after storm conditions, and it could be storms that happened way out into the Atlantic that have their... Uh, the repercussion of that comes many days later on the coasts, but you get you get you get really a sense of islands placed um, in the Atlantic, really, and um, you you really do get a sense of of islands in, in relation to the rest of the world. You're more conscious of being part of the rest of the world. As a sailor, when I came to um, sailing, I've always been crazy about boats and going out in boats. But when I came to, yeah, skipper and uh, navigate um, either my own or other people's craft, um, you found that you you had to learn to work tides to advantage, and that gave you an alternative map and an alternative view of distance. So, for instance, for me. Uh, where storytelling is, is, continues to be one of my passions. I grew up with stories. My mother was a fantastic storyteller. My father too, in his own way, but my mother's family were kind of legends locally. 
And so it was nothing unusual for me to have stories all around. But as someone with a keen interest in stories still, I'm really conscious of the provenance of so many stories following the sea route. So in the Hebrides, we're at a kind of confluence between an Irish stream coming up through the Southern Hebrides and a Norse stream. And of course, we were a Norse colony until comparatively late, I think it was 1266 or so, that we ceased to be part of Norway. So you are conscious when you navigate from the island of Lewis that you are taking your place in uh, a rather different tideway than is suggested by road or aircraft transport. Yeah, yes, yeah, so you can see all those connections as far as Norway and over to Ireland. Yeah, it's amazing. And could you, could you just tell us a bit more about that, that life growing up on Lewis with a family who were, at least in part, you know, legendary storytellers? Because that's just fascinating. Yeah, well, I think I was very, very lucky that um, I grew up just before the telly took over. It was just the last few years before there was a telly in everybody's house. And so it was probably the last of the extended family coming around in the evenings. And, and it seemed almost every evening somebody would be around and people, they wouldn't have called it storytelling. They would have just called it blethering. But, but then there'd be a little bit like a pause and a jump and you'd get a set piece story. And the typical ones for me, and I, I remember more and more of them, through my mother's telling and also several of my uncles who all their own different versions, as is normal. But they came almost certainly from my grandfather, Murphy and Yolak, Finley's Myrtle from the village of Shawgust. Uh, he, he was a great socialist orator, but he also had a great stock of uh, oral tradition, both song, stories, verse. And uh, one of my uncles wrote a memoir, which has never been out of print, from being you know, one of the last generation born in the black house, a simple thatched house without sanitation, fire in the middle of the floor. Uh, and my mother was born in a black house. So that's, that's just one generation back. Important, important to really remember that. But, but what, what transferred from that unacceptable living standard to the comparatively good standard we had in a fairly newly built council house, built to an excellent standard in Stornoway. What really was transferred was village ways of life. In many ways, the streets of Stornoway, the, the housing cul-de-sacs, in many ways, they, they were little <laughs> um, joined up villages. And, and um, so the stories you would get were like, you know, people would ask for them. And we, we learned to ask them, tell us more, tell us another Dolochaibel story. He was the black sheep of the family. And now I would see that whole line of stories as being a, a variation on trickster stories. The man who can get out of trouble with a twist of wit. But they were Dolochaibel stories, a cousin of my grandfather and everyone in the family told these stories. And I hope my lads now tell these stories as well, because they were just passed on. Yeah. Mm, 
Yeah. So, so, so of an evening, it'd start off with just casual conversation as you do. And then at some point, it'd just go a bit deeper and you'd get like a, a, an older story. And then perhaps it would go carry on from there. You'd get different kinds of stories later on. Was there a general pattern there? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I, I would say one of the most common recurring Lewis stories is premonitions of different kinds. And almost every family seems to have a premonition story with countless variations. And often these are told as not as stories, but this is something that happened. And I've heard them introduced in exactly these words. I'm, I'm sure that's not unique to Lewis in any way. In fact, I know it's not. But I would say that that is probably the most typical strand of fascination with um, premonition, second sight. Um, and so, yeah, there are numerous, numerous examples of these kind of stories. People would often, like my, my uncles would often um, reminisce about my grandfather's big stories. Now he died when I was quite young. So I, 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 rem I remember him as being very playful and full of fun, but I, I was too young to really remember specifically stories he told. But very often um, my mother and her brothers and sisters, they were a large family, like most then, they would they would recall the sort of longer great set piece stories, and they might remember snatches, but to my knowledge, I never heard them tell any of them intact. Mm. And so when I became passionate about stories, I really kind of um, tried to piece together from the, the, the parts I remembered or my mother remembered. And we tried to piece these together with other documented segments, partial stories. And, and then you would find that there had been research projects and then you would be able to link these with more complete versions. So it's been a little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of research and a little bit of memory in trying to piece together in an authentic way um, some, of the, some of the stories which I know that my grandfather would have told. Mm -hmm. And I can definitely recommend to listeners your book, Western Isles Folktales, to sample some of the, the stories that you tell uh, from Lewis and from the islands, because it's absolutely wonderful. I've read it two or three times, I think, and, and you know, we'll continue. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that comes across, because that, yeah. that was a bit of a labour of love. I mean, I called it, that's my national service for Lewis. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, to, to, uh, to try and gather as much as possible of the, um, both both ones I'd heard by oral transcription and ones I'd had to research. And, and as you noted from the, the footnotes in the book, for me, it, it's very, very important to give the provenance of the story. You know, it's not enough to say some old guy told me this. Um, for me, it, I think it's really a matter of respect and authenticity to be as meticulous as you can in noting, you know, the provenance. It doesn't mean to say you slavishly um, try and tell a story word for word the way somebody else told it, no. But the, the essence of the story and the source of it for me is a very important part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I try and do something uh, similar with my own collections. 
And then, um, so you've, you've uh, become a storyteller yourself and you share the stories in Lewis and you've shared them uh, in, in many, many places, I believe. And beyond that, you're also, you're a sailor and you're uh, a poet and uh, you're, you write uh, fiction. Uh, you've got other books uh, coming out in the coming years. And I'd, I'd love to hear a bit about these different uh, art forms, um, these different channels through which your creativity takes. Uh, how how they interact with one another and how your life um, as a sailor um, as a I think being a fisherman and a coast guard and and sailing far beyond Lewis uh, how how they've kind of danced together if that's not too vague a question sure no no sure sure I, I've never worked as a commercial as a commercial fisherman I've always been passionate about going to sea and and I came to boats first through going sea angling and and going out subsistence fishing. There used to be excellent uh, coastal fishing around Lewis, uh, which, like in most places, that suffered. But um, uh, in all my life, subsistence fishing has been not, not really for sport, but subsistence fishing, uh, taking what we would call a fry, um, enough for the table, um, has been you know, part of the way of life and it's keeping an island tradition going as well as putting some very nice food on the table. <laughs> and I will be cooking fish tonight as it happens from my friend Duncan's stall in the Saturday morning market in Stornoway because I know where it's come from. But um, but for me, um, the written word and the spoken word have always been concurrent passions. Uh, I was crazy about reading. I couldn't believe it when I got my first library ticket. <laughs> and, and, and you could take any book you wanted out. You know, I just couldn't believe that was possible or that you could get enough of books and possibly still don't. But that, that for me has always gone together with oral stories. When I went to university, I studied education mainly. And there... Um, yeah, the written word and the spoken word were also together. And at gatherings, people would say, tell us that one about... And i go, what? And I hadn't realised that sort of telling set-piece stories was anything unusual, really. But by the time I was at uni, most people didn't do that anymore. So I suppose then I became known as that guy from Lewis Tells Stories. And that's how I was introduced to Stanley Robertson, one of the traveling people storytellers who'd settled in Aberdeen. You guys have got to meet each other. And we became friends and we used to meet uh, to swap stories. And Stanley also wrote poems and we would exchange poems in a little discussion of an evening in Aberdeen. Um, I then uh, met Hamish Henderson at the Traditional Music and Song Association of Scotland festivals. It was like, Keith Festival, I met Hamish. And again, somebody had said, it's a guy you must meet. And, and over the years, um, we, we, we did have some conversations which were memorable. And through Hamish, really, I, I, I became conscious of a wider culture of storytelling in Scotland with many strands, but strongest for me amongst travelling people. So at TMSA, Traditional Music and Song Association Festivals, for example, I heard Betsy White tell a story, which I will never, ever forget. 
um, Duncan Williamson and, and many others, as well as I was crazy about music too, and I would really follow um, fiddle, whistle and, and other examples of vernacular culture. So for me, that and studying literature with a particular emphasis on Scottish literature were completely entwined. I, I, did, I was never any conscious that there was any need to choose between them or that either had a greater status than another. They were just always together. And really that's just continued, Daniel. So basically I alternate between writing books and fiction, non-fiction and, and poetry and um, telling stories, but also um, taking part in various cross arts collaborations, which for me is really just an extension of what a real Cayley is, where you throw different elements together and see what happens. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Uh, your daily practice uh, on your own is uh, like a kind of extension of the Cayley, really just throwing different things together. Yeah. Um, well, I wonder if you could um, tell us a story uh, from, from the Western Isles. Sure, sure. Um, I, I, I always try not to decide in advance. I'm sure you do the same, which story to tell, but what one seems right. So just, just from our conversation, what comes to mind is a story which really was the driving force of the, um, the show, the film we made for, the, for this year's. Scottish International Storytelling Festival. And I heard this story in one amazing Coast Guard watch. I worked for 15 years in the Coast Guard service. And then it was after that I uh, uh, got my yacht master and did some professional sailing for a while. And, but in one amazing Coast Guard watch, I heard two first-hand stories uh, with a provenance you know, the, my colleagues told me they were both local guys, which was quite unusual then. And one of them was a cousin of mine, a Lewis cousin. That means you could be second cousin, third cousin, fourth, who's counting? But John D. Smith, the Barber's Navigator, told me this amazing village story, which is the heart of our show. It's, it's basically a, an extension and placing that one in a context. But then my great friend, Alistair Smith, from the, the west side of Lewis, Alistair said, I've got to tell you one now, Ian. This one came from my uncle in Skiggerstaff, because by that time I was a volunteer skipper with Skonishal, which is, is a former vessel unique to North Lewis. And I still, I still volunteer as a skipper with these traditional boats and manage renovations and so on. But this is a story linked to these craft. Um, I'll, just, I'll just tell it um, pretty much the way Alistair told it to me. Fantastic. Change came to North Lewis. The change 
was moving from subsistence fishing where you were just going out for a fry for you and the family and anyone could take the pick of the catch when you came back. The move was from that to fishing for a market because there was a market for the great dried cod and ling, which were plentiful out from the coasts if you could get out to catch them. And that led to a boat building. And all the north shores of the islands, it seemed that in every gyaw or little, little crack, crevice bay, there'd be a new skull, Nishoch. Skull is a skiff. And these boats were all built in Port of Ness by the MacLeod family. Norse origin, most would say, but very beamy boats, ample and stern for buoyancy. They couldn't be deep because they were all beach launched and they were driven by a powerful dipping lug sail with a yard longer than the mast so that the sail was carried over most of the length of the boat. That gave you the power to come through the surf and out. Now, the larger boats, would fish maybe 40 miles out. And in this village, along the north coast, there were two brothers, twins. And rivalry is not a good thing on the boat. And both of them, as the other fellow said, knew where to point her, just had a feel for it. And so none of these skippers had any qualifications. The crew would know who's a safe pair of hands. Who'll find the fish? Most important, who will get us home? So each of these twins became skippers of a boat. So twin, twin lads, twin boats. This time, they were 40 miles north-northeast of the butt of Lewis. That's the north point. They weren't there for fish. They were there for fowl. Because the island, the island, we call it an island, it's more a rock of sealess, kind of bare rock is occupied, or the stone bothy on it is occupied for a fortnight in the year when the Nishoks go there to take the young gannets, and they still do. So in the autumn, they will go to take the young gannets. And these two, like vessels, were taken into the bay at Sulaskar, out in the North Atlantic. And each of them was hauled on its own tackle up a crevice in the rock, secured, because if the boats were wrecked, you were stranded. Now, that is tough work in hard conditions every day but Sunday for about the two weeks. And they had a good haul, and the, the guka, the young gannets, were passed on a wooden shoe down the rock, and each skipper would place the haul because the trim of the boat was crucial. The stone ballast, the haul, and what was left of the gear and provisions would be placed before they left. But when the boats left, the lee of Suliska, black anvil clouds, and then white hail, they were caught in a great northerly squall. Now, on that point, all they could do was hold to the course they were on, as it happened. Each of them had hoisted a sail on a different side. Now, these boats, on that point of the sail, with the wind never, never behind them, never completely astern, but off the skipper's shoulder, you would say, off a quarter of the boat, they, they have 
sun go in them. They just rise, lift up their skirts, and they have sun go in them. So with each moment, their tracks must diverge fast. Now they'd call on the crew to reduce sail, reduce it, but they had to keep some sail, some power, because they couldn't be caught without power between these big ones. They must rise to them and find the next one. And the way Alistair told me it, each of them, each of the brothers, held up a hand, high as he could, and on the top of a wave, each brother had a greeting from the other, because it might be the last one. Off they went, and soon out of sight of each other, and each of them struggling for the survival of his vessel. Now, one of them, with the wind on his port side, went for home, butt of Lewis Lighthouse, and through all the squall, the butt of Lewis Light came up, and his crew said, take her in, skipper, take her in. I don't think so, he said. What do you mean? There's been more boats wrecked on the way in that dogleg into our harbour than there have been at sea. We'll hold her out and we'll get a lee of the land and we'll keep her in the deep water and we'll run. And that's what they did. They had to trust him. And he held her out because when, when, when the Atlantic is squeezed, it doesn't like it. It doesn't like it very much. And when all that depth of water hits the shallowing on, off the west side of Lewis, the waves get steeper than you could imagine. You've seen it. Daniel, you've seen it. That's what happens. So he kept her running, and it was pretty well halfway down the length of a long island before there was Old Hill out from Bernara and so into Loch Rogue, and they could put up a bit more cloth, and he sniffed away into Loch Rogue and safety. And the Valtus folk could not believe it when a great Scottish came out of that squall. They'd heard it all whistle that night and they didn't think there was a boat could have survived it. And so they were given food and warmth and most important, a telegram could be sent. And the skipper's mother could pass the word to all the crew, at least one boat is all right. The boys are all right. And maybe, they gave the folk of Altus their first taste of a Gukka from Suliska. What are the other boat? On the starboard tack, he was going for Cape Wrath, the northwest tip of the Scottish mainland. Now, he wasn't the first to take a score there, because the word is that that had happened before, because they say that it wasn't only Suliska they went for the Gukka, they went also to Sulskeri and Stakskeri and maybe competed with the Orcadians for a share of that catch. But he was probably the first to do it in those conditions. And again, the crew are saying, as they're coming up and they're getting that sweep of Cape Wrath light, the crew are saying, there's the North Minch, take her down, take her home to Lewis, Skipper. I don't think so. He said, I can feel the tide's got a hold of our keel now. And the flood tide here bends round along the north coast of Scotland. And if we catch that, we'll find shelter there. We'll not go into the North Minch tonight. 
trusted the skipper. They had no option. They chose a man they thought could take them to safety. And it went just as he had hoped. And the tide and a bit more cloth took them a beamloch edible. And he nosed in there. And <laughs> it wasn't the easiest of landings because there was still plenty of breeze. And every time they tried to slow her with the oars, some of them would break like carrots. But they landed, there might have been a repair to do. But everyone walked from that boat safe. And so a second message could be sent. And a woman in Lewis knew that her second son had come through it. And the word would go round to everybody that this time, this time, they'd all come through it. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Ian. I loved how the, you use such rich language there and language which is you, you have because you know the sea and you know boats so well, which I certainly would not have been able to, do, to have done. So really brought it alive. Well, I have had the honour of um, taking uh, the last of the surviving work in Scottish of the 27-foot Jubilee. Um, when she was 75 years old, we... Uh, made an expedition to Suliska, 40 miles out, and um, and then returned safely to Port of Ness, and we made another expedition from Port of Ness to Stromness, Orkney. So I suppose when I tell a story, I can, I can reimagine being at the helm of the boat and see the water. Yeah, sure, and I really do think that often comes across when a person's really, in one way or another, lived a story and they can see it. Somehow it passes on, doesn't it? Oh, thank you. That was that was wonderful. It's been great to have you here on the podcast. And um, so I wonder if you could uh, tell our listeners uh, where they can find you, what work you've got available, if you do any uh, online events, or that there's the there's the piece which you mentioned earlier. Yes. Um, uh... Different times I've travelled to different storytelling festivals, including uh, the Lahore Literary Festival and an exchange storytelling festival with uh, a wick to develop a storytelling exchange with a Pakistani teller, which is a wonderful experience. Also working with illustrators and that became an Edinburgh Book Festival event. And this time, the... The event for the Scottish International Storytelling Festival is one of a group of commissions, I think 10 or 11, uh, under the Imagine theme. And I believe they will shortly uh, go online. They went out as a scheduled performance. And what, what we made, a team of, uh, a group of artists, what we made as equal collaborators is an hour long film and it, it was filmed in the blacksmith shed in Stornoway, which was the source of some of the stories which are dovetailed into a piece which I suppose is like a hybrid between film, theatre, visual art, storytelling. And um, 
uh, through, through the Scottish National Storytelling Festival, SISF, uh, that should be available on YouTube shortly. Publication-wise, um, my novel, A Book of Death and Fish, published by Sarabund, um, if you, if you uh, look at the Sarabund site, um, that should come up. It was, it might be a Guardian review comes up too with a link. Uh, but, uh, but I don't think there's two books called A Book of Death and Fish, so that should come up. Um, um, I made a book which alternates accounts of voyages in boats I've had a relationship with, uh, with retelling stories um, linked to the geography the boat bought me, brought me to. Yeah, bought me is not a bad term, but <laughs> the geography that, that, that the boat brought me to. Um, uh, and that's published uh, by Bloomsbury. The book is called Waypoints, and it's the Adler Coles nautical imprint of Bloomsbury. So the Bloomsbury site and, and Waypoints, that, that should come up. Yeah, yeah, and I'll put... Um, and then there's the one you mentioned, West Highlands Folktales, which is the History Press. Yeah, yeah sure. I'll, I'll put links um, to your website or anything else relevant. Fantastic. In the show notes That's brilliant. Easily. Great. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I know you've got uh, lots of writing to do, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, the deadline looms for... Uh, it's a commission book on uh, the vessels of Scotland. Christine, my wife, came up with a title, though, which I love. It's Boat Lines. Mm. Subtitle is Scottish Vessels of Sea, Coast and Canal. So it's a kind of alternative tour of Scotland, boat by boat. Mm. Fantastic. Berlin books. Mm. All right. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on House of Legends, Ian, and uh, hopefully see you again soon down the road. Well, thanks for the invite, Daniel, and Island to Island. Uh, all the very best with what you're doing, which is a wonderful project. Uh, quite inspiring, really. Uh, great to have the link all the best that's all for this week if you're enjoying the podcast please support it by sharing it on social media or even sharing the link with a few friends who enjoy a good story i'd also really appreciate a review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen as reviews really help the podcast to grow you can get access to every house of legends episode by becoming a patron by pledging five dollars per month or more you'll receive a patron-only episode each month along with a worksheet full of questions and creative prompts to help you deepen your connection to the story. If you'd like to read stories as well as hear them, you can now find my books by searching for Daniel Allison at all major online bookstores, although currently you can only get my full catalogue on Amazon. You can get my free ebook, Silverborn, by visiting my website, www.houseoflegends.me. And don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a storyteller yourself, or you're already a storyteller and would like to develop your craft, you can join my online storytelling school, The Roundhouse, or you can join my Myth Singers coaching program, which includes a Roundhouse membership plus two monthly group coaching sessions with me. You'll find links to all of the above in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.